All right, now, if you will, brothers and sisters, let's open up our Bibles together and turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10 here in just a moment. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. This life that we are in, it's a battle. It's a war. Even though oftentimes it doesn't feel like that. We are tempted to forget the fight that we are in. Paul calls this life a fight of faith elsewhere in our New Testament. You are in the middle of a cosmic battle that is going on. Your enemy is formidable. He is cunning. He is ruthless. Peter tells us that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus says he is the master deceiver and the father of all lies. And if you fail to recognize that this is a war for your life, for your eternity, if you fail to recognize your enemy, you will be like an ignorant animal that is being led away to the slaughter. And just as that animal walks along calmly, happily even, and simply goes with the flow, allowing itself to be walked right into a death trap, you too will just go right along comfortably without giving a thought to what is about to happen to you until it is too late. You are in a war for your very life, and you must recognize this before it's too late. Today, in our verse-by-verse trek through Ephesians, we come to what is perhaps the most well-known passage in the entire book, the armor of God. Let's read our text today. We're going to start in verse 10, read down to verse 17. This is God's word through the Apostle Paul. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I want to point out two broad things to you today in our text and under those two headings kind of some sub-points, some more detailed points. The two broad ideas are this. Number one, you are in a spiritual war. And number two, this spiritual war takes spiritual armor. It requires spiritual armor. First, 
let's look at the fact that we are in a spiritual war. We see this most especially in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 talks about that we stand against the schemes of the devil, our enemy who is a spiritual foe. And then verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against those spiritual forces. A man by the name of Abraham Kuyper once said, if once the curtain of this world were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem, by comparison, a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is is engaged. But do not hear that and misunderstand. This is not just a battle being fought around you. It is not just a battle being fought around you. No, it is a battle that you are in. You are in this battle. Notice how in verse 12 he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, But as the grammar of the sentence goes on, he's saying we do wrestle against those spiritual forces, those cosmic powers. We wrestle against them. We are in this battle. It's not just something we watch. It's not just something that's happening with other beings. We're in it. We are in it. Our enemy, Satan, is a fallen angel. Do you know that? Satan is a fallen angel. He was an angel originally and fell. And God committed him to the the chains that he is in at this point. By chains, I don't mean that he cannot do evil. I just mean that God has restricted him to an appropriate place. God has restricted his activity. But Satan used to be an angel. He's a fallen angel. And his demons are angels that fell with him. And that tells us they are not physical enemies. They're not physical enemies. They're spiritual beings. They are fighting on a different plane of reality than we are used to. They're fighting on a completely different plane of reality than the one that you inhabit every day, than the things that you see and touch and interact with. And understand that Satan, the leader of this enemy army, is beyond any of us. He's beyond any of you. Satan is more powerful, more intelligent, more cunning than any human being on the face of the earth or that has ever been on the face of the earth, save one. He has thousands of years of experience versus our very limited time that we have been alive. Satan knows scripture better than every single one of us. He knows the Bible better than every single one of us. Why? Because he's had so much time to read it and to understand it and to know it and to twist it and to use it for his own evil ends. He schemes, verse 11 talks about that, the schemes of the devil. He schemes to deceive people. He schemes to deceive people. And understand this about Satan, our enemy. The primary way that he attacks us and attacks human beings is not possessing their bodies, The primary way that he attacks us is not even temptation, as common as that is. The primary way that Satan attacks is deception. He wants to deceive you and to deceive the world. He's a master deceiver. 
In our day, Satan has convinced millions and millions of people that evil things are good and good things are evil. He's convinced them. And they believe it wholeheartedly. He is a master deceiver. He is a master at spreading lies and getting tons of people to believe them and buy into them and even change the way they live accordingly. Now, you may be thinking, if all of that is true, what hope do I have in a war like this? They operate on a different plane of reality than I experience. Our enemy, the leader of our enemy army, is is more formidable than any of us, more intelligent, more dangerous, more strong than any of us. What hope do we have in a battle like this? Well, there's a, a hymn that we used to sing in the church that I grew up called, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. That's the hope. We have one who is stronger than him. We have one who understands all the intricacies of this battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. A theme throughout the Old Testament was that God fought Israel's battles for them. God fought for them. In fact, we see that very phrase over and over again in the Old Testament. God fights for them. When the Egyptians chased them into the Red Sea that was parted, the Egyptians quickly realized, oh no, we better retreat because the Lord fights for the Israelites. We must retreat. And they didn't have time to, and God swallowed them up in the Red Sea. As Joshua led the Israelite army into the promised land, There were all of these inhabitants of the promised land that God had judged. And God told the Israelites, I want you to go in and wipe them out. This land is giving, I'm giving this land to you. And as Joshua led them, you see this phrase over and over again in the book of Joshua. God fought for them. The Lord fought for them. God won the battles for them. You read that book of Joshua, the Israelites go 31 and 0. Undefeated season. And they, they defeat every single king and every single people group in there, not because of their own size, not because of their own military prowess. It was because of the Lord. The Lord fought for them. We see it as David comes against Goliath. And people are trying to dissuade David from going out to meet this giant. He's just a young boy. And David says, the Lord's going to do it. The Lord will defeat him in front of me. The Lord is stronger than this man. The battle is God's, and yet, and yet, we do not just sit back passively and watch him. We enter into the battle. He wants to use us as a way to bring about his victory. God will have the victory, but he wants to use us to bring it about. He wants to use us as his soldiers. And what a privilege it is that God wants to use us in this war. What a privilege it is that he would think that we could do something for him in this battle. It's exciting to be chosen by God to fight in this war. And so he calls us into battle, a battle which is fought on a different plane of reality than ours, against an enemy that is more formidable than any of us. And he does that so that he will get all the glory And so that we will depend on him and not on ourselves. He calls us into a battle that seems overwhelming. It seems like we couldn't do anything in this battle to help except just lose and lose decisively. And yet he calls us into this battle where we feel like we're helpless so that we will depend on him 
and not on ourselves, and so that he will get all the glory when our enemies are ultimately defeated. Notice in verse 10 how it says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord, not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God. It's all focused on him and our dependence on him so that he will get the glory. Now, this is a spiritual war, not a physical one, right? A a physical war would be much different. This is a spiritual war. And so the strengths and advantages and strategies of physical war don't apply here. All the normal strengths and advantages and strategies of physical war don't apply here. Let's say you were going into battle tomorrow. And I, I mean, for this illustration, a physical battle. Let's say you were going into a physical battle tomorrow behind enemy lines. And you can take five people with you. You can choose five people to go to war with you. Out of the people that you know, who would you choose? Who would you choose if you could pick five people to go into a physical battle with you tomorrow? Think about it for a second. Five people. I would choose the biggest, baddest dudes I could find. I would choose guys who weren't afraid of nothing. I would choose guys who were hulked up. I would choose guys who were tough as nails. I would choose guys who were assertive and intelligent, who thought on their toes, who knew a lot about weapons, who knew a lot about explosives, right? Wasn't too long ago I read a book called No Easy Day. It was written by a Navy SEAL. It was the first-hand account of the Navy SEAL team that went in and killed Osama bin Laden. Fascinating book. Just fascinating. I think the part that stood out to me the most, except for the actual part where they went in and did the mission, the part that stood out to me the most was how they described how this elite team of Navy, Navy SEALs is chosen from among the Navy SEALs. Now, if you don't know this, the Navy SEAL is like the best of the best. Okay, you've got to be in extraordinary physical and mental condition to become a Navy SEAL. But within the Navy SEALs, there's this small elite team made up of the best of the best. And they have to be so elite, so sharp, so intelligent, so physically fit, that they can be ready at a moment's notice to execute the most risky and challenging operations in the world. Reading about what it took for people to be on that team and how, like, superhuman these guys are was just amazing. Just amazing to read. Those are the kind of guys that I would pick if I was going into a physical war tomorrow and I could choose five. But let's say this. Let's say God comes to you today and says... I'm sending you into spiritual battle tomorrow. I'm sending you into an intense spiritual battle against Satan and demons tomorrow. It's a spiritual battle, and you can take five people. Choose your team. Who's the five that you're going to pick? Now, I'm here to tell you the five that I would pick for that battle would look nothing like the five that I would pick for the physical battle. They wouldn't look anything like them. Because the strategies and the strengths and advantages of physical war don't apply in this spiritual war. You would look at my five and you would be like, you picked him? You picked her? Really? Because the strengths and advantages are totally different. In a spiritual war, things like humility have an immense value. Things like knowing you are weak and that you depend on the Lord have immense value value. The, the strengths and advantages of a physical battle don't apply here. We are in a physical, or we are in a spiritual war, not a physical one. Now, 
I want to show you an implication of that first phrase in verse 12. Look at that first phrase in verse 12 again, where he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, here's one implication of that, an important implication. Our fight, brothers and sisters, is not against other people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not your enemies. Your enemies are spiritual beings, but not people. Other people are not our enemies. We are not fighting against a political party. We are not fighting against those in the entertainment industry. We are not fighting against unbelievers. We are not fighting against Christians who disagree with us on doctrinal matters. We are fighting against Satan and his demons. Oh, it might seem like we are fighting other people. It might seem like other groups of people are our enemies, especially in the culture that we live in now, right? In the divisive culture, especially in America today that we live in, a lot of times it's going to seem like people are our enemies. They are not. Our enemies are spiritual. Even those who actively oppose God and Jesus are not our enemies. They have simply been deceived by the true enemy. We must see them as such. We must look upon them with the compassion that the Lord looks on them. We must see them as immortal souls who will spend eternity in one of two places. This is one of Satan's great lies. One of Satan's schemes to get us to feel like our enemies are other people instead of the spiritual forces. There's a famous line from a movie that came out in the 90s that goes like this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. A lot of truth in that. Let me show you one of the ways that Satan schemes that we learn from God's word, the truth in God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. This is going to be on the screen behind me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. And designs there is a synonym for schemes. We're not ignorant of his designs, of his schemes. How does Satan scheme? One of the ways is to get us to believe that people are our enemies. And so one of the ways that we cannot be outwitted by him, one of the ways that we can prevent ourselves from being outwitted by Satan, is by forgiving each other, by forgiving other people. When you don't forgive other people, you are being outwitted by Satan. He is laughing at you. He is smiling to himself when we don't forgive other people because he is outwitting us with his schemes, his designs. Do you notice in our text how one of the pieces of armor is shoes? We find that in verse 15. Verse 15. Look at the shoes. What does it say about the shoes? As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of what? The gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Now, for a second here, imagine with me, you're in a battle and you're about to run across the battlefield against the enemy. 
And then once you get there, you're going this way and that, trying to fight. What if you didn't have any shoes on? How would that be? If you didn't have any shoes on in that battle? Well, I, I don't know about you. Your feet might be the most callous feet in the history of the world, but mine aren't. And I'd be going, ouch, 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 ouch. Everything would be hurting, right? It'd be sensitive. I'd be focused on what's happening on the bottom sides of my feet versus what's happening right in front of my face. It's horrible for a war, right? You've got to have shoes on for all kinds of activities, war especially. But what happens when you don't have the gospel of peace? You're sensitive like that. Ouch, that hurt. Ouch, that offended me. Ouch, I don't like what you did. Ouch, I don't like what you said. Ouch, ouch, ouch. When you don't have the gospel of peace. But the beautiful thing about the gospel, having the peace of the gospel in your heart, is that you can forgive freely and generously because other people can't touch you. People can't touch you when you have the gospel of peace. It doesn't matter how much you insult Jesus Christ. He was praying for the forgiveness of the people who were killing him. People can't touch you when you have the gospel of peace. You forgive easily. You're not so sensitive. You're not so easily offended. And that gospel of peace is so important. If you are not a Christian and you are in here today, let me first say thank you for being here. I know how hard it can be. And I know that it can be a very hard thing to walk into a church in a setting like this if you are not a Christian. And so we, we want to say welcome. But I also want you to understand if you're not a Christian today, that you are not our enemy. We are not enemies. But also understand There is more going on in this world than just the stuff that you can see and touch. There's more going on in this world than just the stuff that you can see or touch. Doesn't your heart tell you that that's true? Doesn't your heart tell you there's more going on here? There are spiritual forces in this world for good and for evil. Look at what's going on in our country and in our world today. Doesn't your heart tell you that something has gone horribly wrong? Does not your heart tell you that someone is behind the scenes playing millions of people like a bunch of marionette puppets? Doesn't your heart tell you that? Do you ever look at the news or look at politics or look at Hollywood and think someone has gotten tens of thousands of people to believe a massive lie? It's true. Where does all this come from? It's the spiritual forces of darkness behind the reality that we can see. And there is only one person that is powerful enough to set you free from it. And if you are not set free by this one person, then you will be swept away along with the millions of others in the massive lie. It will sweep you away just like it has swept them away. The only way out of it Because Satan is so powerful, so formidable, the only way out of it is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, let's move on to the armor. We're in a spiritual war, but this spiritual war requires spiritual armor. Spiritual armor. You ever heard the phrase, don't bring a gun, or don't bring a knife to a gunfight? You ever heard that phrase? Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. 
You, you remember Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? This is probably my favorite example of this one. He, he's over there in that foreign country, and he, he walks out of this building, and all of a sudden there's this, this man wielding all kinds of swords, dressed up as this warrior, and he's, he's just showing off his sword skills, and he's so much taller than Indiana Jones, and you're like, he, he's, in a, he's, he's in a David and Goliath fight here. And he watches him flip his swords around, and if, if this was a hand-to-hand combat, Indiana Jones would be dead in a second. But he just pulls out his gun, and it's over. He's like, well, what all that showing off was about? Okay. And he just walks on, on with his business. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, don't bring physical weapons to a spiritual war. Don't bring physical weapons to a spiritual war. Physical armor is of no use here. Worldly methods are no use here. We need spiritual armor. We need the armor of God. Now, I want you to notice in all of these pieces of armor that Paul lists from verse 13 down to verse 17... All of these pieces of armor are either something that we receive from God or something that we do to grab a hold of something that we receive from God. It's all about receiving from God this armor. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God. It's all about receiving from him, from God. It's all focused on God and not yet, not us. And yet, and yet... Paul tells us not just to sit back and wait to receive these things. He tells us to put them on, take them up. You have to do it. You can't just sit back and wait for it. You have to do it. You have to put on the armor. You have to take up the armor. We've got to do that ourselves. But the question then is, okay, how do we do it? This is such an abstract thing. It's, it's spiritual. How do I do that? How do I, take, how, how do I take up the shield of faith? How do I put on a breastplate of righteousness? This is not something that you can do with your hands. What do we do? What does this actually mean? Well, you can't do it with your hands. But what you can do it with is your inner self, your mind, your heart, your will. That's our inner being, your mind, your heart, your will. We, we tend to separate those three things out from each other. You know, the mind's more about thinking than intelligence. The heart's more about feeling and emotions. The will's more about, like, you know, inner strength. We tend to separate those things out. Interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't. You read through the whole Bible. It doesn't separate those things. It just talks about our inner being and includes all three of them. When it says your heart in the Bible, it includes your mind and your will. It actually includes it. You'll often find places in the Bible where it talks about our heart thinking. Your heart thinks. Did you know that? Because the Bible's talking about not just your emotions. It's talking about your inner being. Your inner being. That is how we take up and put on the armor of God. We do it with our inner self. And so just to to give you a little bit more flesh on those bones, so to speak, let's quickly go through these pieces of armor and see how we can put them on, or take them up. It starts in verse 13. No, verse 14, I'm sorry. Verse 14. Having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Who is teaching you? That's my question. Who's teaching you? I don't just mean a teacher at school. Who's teaching you what's important about life? Because someone is. You're listening to someone. You're you're getting that from somewhere. I don't care who you are. Every single one of us is getting that from somewhere. It's just a question of where you're getting it from. 
Many of us are getting it from Hollywood producers, movies and TV shows, and they are telling us what's important. They are telling us what to value, and we're just swallowing it up. Many of us are getting it from music, from musical artists. Many of us are getting it from things like Instagram influencers, YouTube channels. Or we could be getting it from friends, from family members. But you're getting it from somewhere. You are listening to someone. I don't care who you are. Someone is speaking into your life and into your head and telling you, this is what's important in life, this is what you should value, and this is how you should act accordingly. And so the question is, where are you getting it? Where are you getting truth? Who is telling you? Who are you letting tell you? This is truth. Believe it. If you are letting the culture around you be your teacher, and I'm here to tell you Satan is filling your mind with all kinds of lies. Satan has always had a hand in what becomes popular in this world. Satan has always had a hand in what becomes popular in this world. Because he has a vested interest in seeing his lies spread to as many as possible. He has always had a hand in what becomes popular in this world. To find the truth, you're going to have to go to people and places that aren't cool. It's one of the great secrets in life. To find the truth, you're going to have to go to people and places that aren't cool, that everybody else doesn't go to. The truth is not going to be in this God-forsaken country and God-forsaken world. The truth is not going to be, and by that I don't mean God has forsaken us, I mean we have forsaken God. The truth is not going to be shiny and attractive. You're going to have to go find it in unlooked-for places. Let me do you another Indiana Jones reference here. Indiana Jones and the, the, the Last Crusade. Sean Connery one, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, at the very end, he's looking for the Holy Grail. He gets to this, this little place in a cave. There are all these treasures sitting there. And the knight that has been there for, for thousands and thousands of years, because he's cursed to be there, says, you have to choose which one is the real one. And the bad guy in Indiana Jones there, the bad guy chooses the, the most shiny object there. It looks like something that would be very important. And he chooses, and what happens? He dies. He dies. Indiana Jones' turn. Choose wisely. What are you going to choose? Out of all of these shiny gold objects that look like treasures, there's one cup that looks rusted, nondescript, looks like it doesn't really fit. It's very, very plain. And that's the one that he chooses. The Bible tells us the truth is like a billion-dollar treasure disguised in jars of clay. It's in a jar of clay. Nothing shiny, nothing important. And so one of the great secrets of this life is if you want to find the truth, you're going to have to go to places that aren't cool. You're going to have to go to places that aren't shiny, aren't attractive, because that's where God's put it. For the people who are willing to go get it. Elsewhere, you'll be getting lies. Satan is dangling a hook in front of your face, and it has juicy meat on it. And as the fish in the sea, we are looking at that, and it looks really attractive, and it looks really good. And you go ahead and bite down on that thing and see what happens. It's not going to be what you expect. Where are you getting the truth? Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your 
mind. Don't let the world conform you to itself. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind in God's truth. How do you put on the breastplate of righteousness? Righteousness. How do you put on the breastplate of righteousness? How do you put on righteousness in a sense? Well, remember, this is an inner thing. Can't do it physically. To put on righteousness, you have to put on Christ. To put on righteousness, you have to put on Christ. How do we know that? We know that from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake, he, God, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who was the one who knew no sin? That was Jesus. God made him to be sin, to become sin on the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way to put on righteousness is to put on Christ, to put him on like a jacket, to put him on like a robe, to say to Jesus, I want you to cover me. I'm giving you my life. That's how you put on Jesus. And when you put on Jesus, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. What about the shoes? Well, the shoes are connected with the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. What is the gospel? What does that word mean, the gospel? Gospel means good news. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross and suffered the wrath of God that should have come to us so that if you give your life to Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus paid the price and now it's open to anyone who would accept it. Anyone who would accept him. You can have your sins forgiven. You can escape the wrath of God, but only through Christ. To have the peace of the gospel, you must obey the gospel. One of the things that I think Satan has kind of put into the church is this idea That you can have all the benefits of the gospel if you just kind of say in your mind one day, I believe. I I believe that Jesus existed and so I'm saved. One of the great misunderstandings in the entire Bible is that people look at John 3.16 and they think that John 3.16 says, if you believe that Jesus was a person and if you believe that Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead, you are saved. That's all it takes. That's not what that means. Satan believes all those things. He's not saved. That's not what that means. That's not what believe means there. Believe is much more than just you give mental assent to facts. To have the benefits of the gospel, you have to obey the gospel. You have to put your faith in Jesus. You have to put your trust in Jesus. We're coming to that here in just a second. And you have to repent of your sins. One of the gospel commands is repent of your sins. Turn from your wicked ways and forsake the life that you have been living and turn to Christ. To obey the gospel, you have to confess Jesus as Lord before people. You have to confess publicly, Jesus is Lord. And to obey the gospel, you have to be baptized into his name. You have to believe, you have to repent, you have to confess, and you have to be baptized. And as you are baptized into Christ, it's like you are putting on. Remember, you go under those waters and they envelop you. You put on Christ. That's the gospel. 
The gospel is good news, but it's good news that can only be had if you obey the commands. Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Let's move on to the shield of faith. The shield of faith, how do we take it up? You're supposed to take it up, how do you do that? Well, faith in what? That's what we should ask, I think. Faith in what? Or faith in whom? That's a better question. Faith in Christ. Putting your faith in Christ is trusting Christ. And when you trust in Christ from your heart, you put him as a shield in between you and Satan and all of his fiery arrows. Jesus Christ becomes a shield in front of you. And as he stands in front of you, he easily extinguishes all the fiery flaming arrows of Satan. It is nothing to him to extinguish every flaming arrow that Satan sends out. It's absolutely nothing. But you've got to keep him in front of you. To keep Christ in front of you as that shield, you have to keep faith. You have to continue to have faith. Continue to trust him. And as long as you trust him, he is there in front of you. You have to continue to take it up day by day, hour by hour. You have to trust Christ as a patient trusts their doctor. Trust Jesus as a patient trusts their doctor. I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me all of these things to get rid of the sickness that I have. And I say, well, he's the doctor. I guess I'll do what he says and go home and I get better. When you trust someone, you do what they say. Trusting Christ means doing what he says. Trust Christ as a player, trust his coach. As a player, trust his coach, right? I played basketball in high school. When I was in basketball, I had a coach who was pretty darn good, and he, understand, he understood a heck of a lot more about basketball than any of us did. Even though we were on the court, he was on the sideline. He really understood his basketball. And we would have games every now and then against a team that I didn't think we could even come close to being, being beaten and, and hanging with. And then in the middle of the game, we'd be hanging with them. And coach would call a timeout, and I'd get over there to the, the coach, and he'd start talking, and I'd be like, wait a second. We can actually win this thing. We really can't. The coach was making me believe, even though we started the game, and I didn't think we could even hang with this team. Why? Because we trusted our coach. We trusted. We did what he said, and he knew the, the ways to beat teams that were even physically more superior than we were. Trust Jesus as a soldier. Trust their general. You're out in the middle of, of the battlefield, and the orders come down from on high. You're supposed to move over here, and you think, that doesn't make any sense. Why? Because you can't see everything that they see. You don't know everything that they know, but you trust your general. You do what they say because they know how to bring about the victory in a way that the soldier right in the midst of the battle doesn't. Trust Jesus. That's faith. Let's talk about the helmet of salvation for a second. How do you put on the helmet of salvation? Well, if you obey the gospel, like we said before, you can be saved. Saved from your sin, saved from the enemy, But there's something more important that you need to be saved from, even from those things. Something more important that you need to be saved from. What do you need to be saved from? You need to be saved from the wrath of God Almighty. See, there's something more more frightening than Satan in this universe. There is something more formidable, more intelligent than Satan, and that's God Almighty. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. God's wrath is coming. 
and only some will be saved from it. Who will be saved from God's wrath? Only those who have the protective helmet that he gives out. Only those who have the helmet on that he gives out will be saved from God's wrath when it rains down on all people from the beginning of the existence of this world to the end. God's wrath is coming and it will rain down on everyone. And the only ones who will be saved are those who have the protective helmet that he gives out. You only get that helmet if you come to him through Jesus. His wrath is coming. Will you escape it? And finally, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. The Bible. Taking up the sword of the Spirit is more than just having a Bible with you at all times. That's not going to do it. Having a Bible with you wherever you go is not going to do it. The question is, can you wield this sword? Can you wield it? I can give you a big, sharp sword today, and you can start swinging around, but you're going to hurt somebody, or you're going to hurt yourself, because you haven't trained with it. You haven't been trained to use a tool like that. This is the sword for the Christian soldier. Can you wield it? It's not enough to just have it. Can you wield it? Not if you don't read it. You can't, read, you can't wield it if you don't read it. You can't wield this sword if you don't spend time with it. You can't wield this sword if you don't store it away in your heart. You can have a Bible right next to you, but when the moment of temptation comes, where are you supposed to turn? You can have a Bible right next to you, but when somebody who is suffering in an emergency needs a word from the Lord, where are you going to turn? There's a lot of places in there that are not going to be appropriate for that particular setting. How did Jesus fight off the attacks of Satan in the wilderness? You remember? Matthew 4, Luke 4. How did he fight off Satan in the wilderness? By quoting memorized scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. He had memorized it. He had stored it away in his heart for the opportune time. And when he needed it, he brought it out. It's a sword. It's been said many times, you might have noticed it, the only offensive weapon among all of the pieces of armor is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. In one of my favorite books, Don Whitney, who wrote this book, The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Don Whitney writes this, The weapon of the Word must be present in the armory of your mind in order for the Spirit to wield it. Imagine yourself in the midst of a decision and needing guidance or struggling with a difficult temptation and needing victory. The Holy Spirit enters your mental arsenal and looks around for available weapons, but all he finds is a John 3.16, a Genesis 1.1, and a Great Commission. Those are great swords, but they are not made for every battle. You've got to be able to wield it, which means you can't just take up the sword of the Spirit in an instant. It's not going going to just be something that you do later today. You've got to do this regularly, consistently. You've got to spend time with God's Word. You've got to read all of God's Word little by little. And as you do, you will become proficient in wielding this sword, which is a powerful and dangerous sword, especially to the enemies of the one who wrote it. So, in conclusion, you can be like the ignorant animal, just going along with whatever happens, 
being led to the slaughter, and you will regret it for all eternity. There is a horrifying picture that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 7 of people who come up before Jesus on Judgment Day and they fully expect to get into heaven. They fully expect it. You can read this in Matthew chapter 7. They come up to Jesus on Judgment Day and they are expecting him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And in one second, everything changes for all eternity and Jesus tells them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Now, can you imagine what it will be like for people to come before Jesus on Judgment Day and to fully expect they are about to enter into heaven? And Jesus says in that one moment, depart from me to hell for all eternity. And there is no second chance. Can you imagine the horror of that moment? Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Don't just assume that you're right with God because you don't do as much bad things as somebody else that you can think of. It has nothing to do with that. Have you put on the armor of God and entered into the battle? That's the question. A lot of people read this this passage, the armor of God, and they think it's only something that people who are already Christians do. No, it's something that every person has to do. We're talking about faith salvation. You've got to put on the armor of God and enter into the battle so that you can be with God for all eternity. Look at what verse 13 says. Verse 13 at the very end, and having done all to stand firm. Do you know what that's saying essentially? Put it in our modern day vernacular. He's saying, when it's all over, will you be on your feet? Will you still be on your feet when it's all over? Or will you be down on the ground? Will you be standing When it's all said and done, that's the question. Will you be standing when it's all over? When Jesus returns to call everyone to account, will you be standing or will you be on the ground? Will you be running away in fear or will you be welcoming him as a friend that you've longed to see your entire life? We're going to spend a few moments now in silent, reflective prayer. Each week here at Columbia Christian, we give this time after the sermon so that we can all respond to God's word. It's a time of response, and we're calling every single one of us to respond, to do so in silent prayer, to to talk to God in your heart, because God has just spoken to you. And whatever he has laid upon your heart is probably going to be different than what he's laid upon the heart of your neighbor. And so we're going to take a few moments to pray silently to God about what we've just heard and what we've just felt. And then after a few moments of silent prayer and response, we'll come back and we'll have a time of invitation where anybody who needs to respond to the word publicly can do so. Let's pray.